Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I am Levi Lika, my pronouns are they, them, and I am the officiant today. Welcome to everyone to our hybrid platform, whether you're here in the hall, watching now on Zoom, or watching or listening to the recording later. We are one community unicried across time and space as we gather to affirm our values and commit to a better world. If you are on Zoom, please check the chat for a welcome from today's Zoom chat usher and for tips like how to use the closed captioning feature. Here in the hall, we have assisted listening devices available. Check in with the sound team at the back for more information. In-person visitors, please stop by the welcome table after platform today to speak to a greeter or to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas. Online visitors, whether watching today or tuning in later, we invite you to send an email to Maceo at maceot at ethicalsociety.org or to fill out a connection form, which you can find at tiny.cc westconnect. I will now read a few of the greetings that folks have written in the chat. Online friends, while I'm doing that, you might want to get a candle to light during our candle lighting ceremony. Peter Bishop says, good morning, everyone. Laura Desculio says, good morning. Trang says, hello, everyone. And Paul Baker says to everyone, welcome. As people continue to settle in, I welcome you here in person and online to prepare, settle in for today's address. Our opening words this morning are the poem, is the poem, New Acts of Courage, by the late Reverend Dr. Franco Holmes. Life does not call us merely to do over and over again what we have already done, nor does it call us to act out as puppets, parts already assigned to us. No. In the midst of a situation which is itself ever-changing, we are free to bring into realization new relationships of understanding and goodwill and new acts of courage. Our opening song today is Gathered Here, performed by Jess Whiteman.
Welcome once again. Each week, we read our statement of purpose as a reminder. That's all right. Each week, we read our statement of purpose as a reminder of our shared values. If you are interested in taking a turn to read the statement of purpose, you can sign up at tiny.cc/readsop. Today's reader is Alex Abbott, who serves as a greeter here at West. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We warmly invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you, Alex. As Alex lights our community candle, I invite those of you with candles at home to light yours and for everyone to join in our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Let us enter now into the centering time of our platform. Each week, we ring this time in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful of queer students returning to classrooms across the country whose states don't say gay bill is making them feel no longer welcome in their learning environments. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us open our hearts to compassion for those who suffer. And let us commit ourselves to the work that calls for our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. Before I guide you into relaxation as we traditionally do, I want you all to notice where your body is holding tension. It might be in your jaw, in your shoulders, your hips or your stomach, your hands and feet. Make a mental checklist of all of those places. Now, one by one, as you take deep, supported breaths that fill your whole body, release that tension. Breathe in. And breathe out. 
all that week's worth of tension. Breathe in and out. In and out. Adjust your posture so that your body can be at ease. Let your thoughts still. Close your eyes or soften your gaze and breathe. We continue our meditation in silence and in the music that follows. Sun goes down when the day is done. Mother Earth awakens me with the heartbeat of the sea. Evening rise, spirit come. Sun goes down when the day is done. Mother Today is from Cuisine de Memoire by N.J. N.K. Jemison. The name of the first entree made me groan. La mort du Marie Antoinette. The menu proclaimed by a follow, followed by a list of dishes: Coq à vin, hearth bread, Chateau du Brun Chardonnay of 1787. 
final pressing before Monsieur Brand themselves met the guillotine. I looked up at my friend and dining companion, Yvette, who smiled. Now don't be ornery, Harold, she said. Her St. Charles accent stretched now into two distinct syllables and slurred my name into one. I told you to keep an open mind. Oh, my mind is open, I said, though I'm wondering whether you've lost yours. The final meal of Marie Antoinette, this is a joke, right? I'm planning to get that, she said, pointing to another item on my menu. I followed her finger and saw, on the occasion of King Edward VIII of England's announcement to the royal family of his intent to marry Wallace Simpson, event of it meant abdication of the throne. Clear turtle soup, lobster mousse with piquant sauce, roast pheasant, potato souffle, mixed grains, fresh pineapple and cheese savory, coffee and liqueurs. Well, at least they don't do executions, I said. She rolled her eyes and tapped the menu again. The point is importance, meaning. The chance to share in a historic moment, or a moment historic to only you. Use some damned imagination, Harold. If you don't like what's on the menu, then order a custom meal. I flipped to the menu's third page reading the instructions regarding custom meals. Any meal from any occasion, the caption read. In fine print, the restaurant patron must be able to provide the exact date. I set the menu down and rubbed my eyes. All right, I'll admit this is original as jokes go, but it's not very funny. Yvette smiled that knowing Mona Lisa way that entranced and infuriated three husbands. Just try it, Harold, she said. It's my treat after all. If you're disappointed, there's no loss, but I doubt you'll be disappointed. I shook my head. There's nothing special about this food, Yvette. This is someone's idea of a bizarre themed restaurant. Who could possibly know for certain what someone had dinner for three for, for three hundred years ago. They could make they could make up the menu out of whole cloth, and there's nobody to contradict them. Our platform address today will be delivered by West Senior Leader Casey Slack. Over to you, Casey. Levi. Last weekend, I attended my niece's wedding in Ohio. My niece is two years younger than I am, and my brother, her stepfather, is 19 years older than I am. He was tasked with giving one of the big toasts at the reception, and my brother, though the life of every party he has ever been to, not much of a public speaker. He came up to us in advance, standing next to me at our table, nervous. More nervous than I think I have seen him in my entire life. 
He had a binder with every word he was going to say written out. And I said, Doug, calm down. I get up in front of people almost every Sunday and I say things that are important. You're fine, it's fine. <laughs> he looked at me like if perhaps I had lost my mind and I reminded him that in my family we all have the gift of gab in some way or another. That our father can talk at length about car parts and history, that our grandfather would tell lengthy and possibly untrue stories about his time as a radio DJ, music creator, and golden glove boxer. <laughs> he looked at me, he said, all right, kid. And he went, and he did all right. He did all right. When he was finished, my father looked at me and said, that's my kid. And I said, do you raise any kids who know how to shut up? <laughs> he said, no. <laughs> Embedded in this story are a bunch of other little stories. A story about how I came to have a brother 19 years older than I am. About how my brother came to have a stepdaughter two years younger than I am about who our father is and who our grandfather was, about what it means to be members of our family, about how we can support each other, how jokes can lighten anxiety, about something that happened in my life last week. Stories are a foundational part of how both of my families, all of my families, all communities, in fact, all humans share information, share emotions, and make sense of the world. In my mother's family, the favorite pastime is sitting around discussing things that happened 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. As we sat at that table at my niece's wedding, I heard my mother and her siblings going over, picking through stories about one of their brothers who has since passed. Stories about who he was as a teenager and who it was that he ran around getting in trouble with. In this way, the identity of my family is made over and over and over again. Now, not all of these stories are true and they don't actually need to be. Stories don't need to recount the facts exactly as they happen to be emotionally relevant, to communicate what they need to communicate, which is about belonging, togetherness, and who we are. Stories are a vital part of being human. The stories we tell about ourselves and our communities can shape how we behave and what becomes real in those communities over time. And we can practice telling stories differently. 
People throughout time and across cultures have told stories for entertainment, for education, for community building. Some of those stories are religious in nature. Some of those stories are fantastic. And I mean that both as in wonderful and as in imaginative. Our history as a storytelling species goes back as far as we have memory of ourself, as far as we have evidence of humans doing things. It is suggested that storytelling developed shortly after language itself, that we figured out how to say words and then very quickly figured out how to string them together as to tell each other about our experiences. The cave drawings of Lasseau and Chavot, France, show images of people and animals and things and are set up in a way that suggests storytelling, that suggests that maybe a component of this practice was to sit together in the cave light glimmering on the drawn images while somebody told a story about what was happening on the wall. Oral tradition is a big part of human history. Before we learned to write things down, before we decided that history meant what we wrote. We were telling stories, myths, legends, fables, prayers, proverbs, poems. The Odyssey, the Iliad, the Vedas, the Epic of Gilgamesh, Aesop. Stories from indigenous peoples around the world from dream time, from the aboriginals of Australia, to the stories of heroes and tricksters like Coyote and Anansi the Spider. Today, we tell stories all the time. We tell stories on television and in movies, in books, newspapers, magazines, on the internet. We tell stories on Instagram. We tell stories on TikTok. We tell stories constantly, almost impulsively. The habit of documenting our lives, a thing really facilitated by cell phones and digital cameras, means that we are all constantly engaged in storytelling, visual, textual, and otherwise. A suggestion about why humans develop storytelling is that it might be easier for us to remember complicated information if it is strung together in an entertaining way. If you learn a story about how so-and-so ate the red berries and then things went very wrong, you might remember not to eat the red berries. But if somebody just says, don't eat the red berries, that might pass out of your brain. Stories also help us empathize with one another, are a way that we can get into each other's heads and emotions, ways we can explore things that we maybe can't experience, ways that we can ask questions that we need to ask, but 
might not want to run into personally before we've thought to ask. We tell stories to make sense of the world around us, to decide who we, our, and who our people are. Storytelling is a deeply emotional experience. Think about a favorite book of yours, or a short story, maybe a movie or a TV show, a story that really affected you, that stuck with you for a long time. I'm going to give you a second to pull that into your head. The story may have been interesting to your brain. It may have had facts and details that made your logical parts real excited. But probably, it also had some elements that made your emotional self become engaged. You fell in love with a character or saw yourself in someone in that story. The story showed you a possibility you hadn't considered before. Maybe a world that could be that is beautiful, or a world that could be that is terrifying, or a world that could be that is simply different. I'm going to tell you another story about my family and my life. I was 22 years old when my maternal grandmother died. Hers was the first death I ever attended, standing in a small room in my aunt's house in the middle of the night, holding hands with my relatives and praying prayers that I didn't believe, but that worked well for everyone else. After my grandmother passed, it became really important to my mother that we paint her nails. People behave strangely in the wake of death. So we woke up my younger cousin who had been sleeping, and we sorted through her nail polish, finding that a 17-year-old's nail polish was not appropriate for a dead 70-something-year-old woman. And so my cousin and I went to Walgreens. Now, a little bit of context. We went to Walgreens at 2 o'clock in the morning, a Walgreens that was otherwise empty, and that I think almost never had anyone in it late at night. When we entered, the two people working there looked deeply confused <laughs> that anyone was present. We picked over the nail polish, settling on a dusty rose color. I don't remember what the color was called, but I remember the Essie bottle shimmering as I took it to the counter. And I set it down, and the woman at the counter said, oh, there's another color like this that's on sale. <laughs> and I said, she's dead. <laughs> and the woman at the counter opened her eyes very wide and took my credit card. <laughs> During the time after my grandmother died, my family was lost. 
My grandmother was the center of who we were. She was the hub around which everything else ran. The way you learned what was going on with your cousins was you called grandma and got the report on everyone. The way you got your hair done was you showed up at grandma's house on Saturday morning and she was inevitably bleaching somebody's hair, so you got yours bleached too. My grandma was the center of communal life in my family, our primary storyteller. She was the one who at all other funerals would come to me and comfort me and say, you get as many heartbeats as you get and then it's done, and that's okay. So naturally, I was a complete wreck at her funeral. There was nobody to comfort me as my grandma had. In fact, none of us had the anchor we had previously had that held us in place. I was losing it. <laughs> It was a rough time in my life. I was 22 and about a year out from college graduation and deeply unemployed, deeply unemployed. Scraping together my rent money, this, that, and the other way, feeling like a failure. The story about me as a child was that I was so smart and it was going to be so easy for me because I was so smart and I was going to go to good school. It was going to be so easy. It was not. After years of school being so easy that I didn't even have to pay attention, I almost failed out of college five times. After graduating, I had one job and then nothing and nothing, and nothing. I sobbed uncontrollably to my friends, saying, she's never going to get to experience me as having been something. She didn't long live long enough for, to bother being proud of me. And that wasn't about her, that was about me. My grandparents were always extremely proud of me. They came to every dance recital, every marching band show, every play I was ever in. I didn't actually need to perform anything to be worthy, but the story I was telling myself, the story I was stuck in, was one where I was a failure and now it was over. My friend Ben turned to me and he said, Casey, can you tell a better story? And I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought about the way that that story I was telling myself was shaping what felt possible in my life. I hadn't realized that telling myself over and over that I had been smart and was now a failure was a limiting story. A story that told me not to reach very far, not to dream about what could be, not to live into everything that my grandmother had known was possible for me 
because I hadn't achieved it by the time I was 22. More than a decade later, that feels very silly, but it was serious at the time. The stories that we are telling about ourselves are changing how we are choosing to behave. The stories we tell ourselves about what we can't do, who we can be, what is and isn't possible in our community, in our country, in our world, they put barriers on where we think we can go. So what if we tell a better story? My better story started at the Unitarian Universalist Society of Cleveland. I had shown up while my grandmother was in the hospital and proceeded to spend several months simply sitting in the back row and sobbing my way through whatever was being said that day. It showed up in being asked to join the team that we called Worship Associates, what's called officiants here. Being asked to use my talents, readily apparent to other people even where I couldn't see them, to engage in storytelling. Eventually being asked to go to seminary. I learned a lot about storytelling over those years. One of the best things I learned about changing the story came to me from a pair of courses titled Theater of the Oppressed and Aesthetics of the Oppressed. Theater of the Oppressed is a series of games and play activities developed by Augusto Boal, a Brazilian revolutionary theater artist. Boal and his troupe had for years traveled around Brazil, encouraging people in small communities to revolution. They would put on plays that would rile people up. And eventually, somebody responded by saying, oh, let's go and coming back with arms full of guns. Boal said, oh, wait, no, that is not what I was trying to do, and set about reworking his approach to theater. You see, Boal realized that what he had been doing was coming into communities he didn't know and telling them what to do telling them to do something that he himself was not comfortable with. He dug into the work of Paulo Freire and the pedagogy of the oppressed, learning about the way that stories can come up from community and down from authority, the ways that if we are given space and time to play and tell our stories, we can change what things mean and what feels possible. We learned about story transformation in the course of these courses. We would come into class, all of us in sweatpants or yoga pants, ready to move around a lot. 
And we would play games intended to dishabituate us, to get us out of the ways of moving and thinking that we were used to. And then we would pose some question, usually a social justice question, but sometimes an interpersonal relationships question. And we would play one of several games designed to help us think through these things differently. We would build a machine out of our bodies, thinking about how evil is culturally produced. And then we would turn the machine into something that produced love instead, changing our positions in the machine, changing the pieces along the way. We would set up situations in which a conversation would begin between two people, and then somebody would tap out, kind of like a whose line is it anyway game, but a little less comical, sometimes less comical. And we would play with how else could you respond to that? We would think and learn together. When we moved on to Aesthetics of the Oppressed, the second course in the series, we learned to do this with art. Not just theater art, but music and visual art. Other modes of storytelling. I learned for myself to think through things by painting. To take my feelings and thoughts and turn them into colors and shapes abstract work that said something to me about my own experience that was hard to find in words or the stories I was used to telling. It is possible to break the stories we are used to telling, to pull ourselves out of them and reorient them in our minds. You will notice in your time with me, whether it is one-on-one -on -one or as a group, that one of my favorite phrases is, have you done art about it? If you come to me with a feeling, an experience you are struggling to process, joy, sorrow, anger, anything, I am likely to suggest that you do art about it. In fact, one of my projects for this year together is for us to do art about it. Each month, we will have a theme from the Soul Matters curriculum, which tells us something like courage, which is next month's theme, or belonging, which is this month's theme. But each month, we will also have a social justice theme. This month, the social justice theme is intersectionality. The idea of multiplicity of forces, multiplicity of being. Now, I need to give you a sidebar. The technical definition of intersectionality is much tighter than the definition we will be using. The technical definition, as proposed by Kimberly Crenshaw, is really, really, really about the ways that race, class, and gender affect black women in particular. This, however, speaks to all of us, because nobody is ever just one thing. 
everybody is being affected by oppressive and supportive forces, whether they come from our experience of being raced, gendered, classed, whether they are experiences of sexuality or immigration, we are all experiencing these forces in multiplicity, and they are creating us as we are creating them. So, sidebar complete. Memory is a kind of storytelling. The way you remember your life is probably not accurate. The story I told you about my brother last weekend is probably not completely accurate. We each only see things from one vantage point, and our memories are not that great, even if they're very good. We tell ourselves stories about who we were, who our country was, who our community was, and those memories are really sticky. Those stories get kind of gunked on to us. Think, maybe, about a story your parents told you about your birth. This is a really common background story for people to have. My story is that my parents had been married for eight years before they decided to have a child. My mom said, can we have a baby? My dad said, as long as it's a girl with brown eyes. And I was not successful. Maybe the story about your birth is less complicated. Maybe it's more. Probably hanging out in the back of your mind shaping some things you think about yourself without necessarily being interrogated or particularly easy to interrogate. Maybe there's a story in the back of your mind about a time you failed, about something that didn't go right, a time you got fired from a job or a relationship ended poorly, a time you failed a test or had an interaction with someone in which you are certain you were just the most awkward person who has ever awkwarded. Maybe that story is stuck to you. I want to go back to our reading for a moment. I don't want to spoil the story too much. I really suggest that you seek out a collection of N.K. Jemisin's short stories that contains Cuisine de Memoir, or go and find the LeVar Burton Reads podcast and scan back a couple of years, and you will find him reading that very story. It is beautiful. What you need to know, though, is that our friend Harold gets way too involved in the memory of a woman that he has loved and gets caught in a situation which causes the wait staff to look at him with disappointment and his friend to shake her head and rub her temples as if her head aches. 
People can get lost in their memories, Harold, she says. You are worse at it than anyone else I know. Angelina is alive right here in this city, and all you've ever had to do was call her. But what do you do? You go looking for the Angelina you lost years ago. I don't know what to do with you. People can get lost in their memories, stuck in their ideas and feelings about how things used to be or who we've always been. Yeah. Exactly. People can chase around after a memory of something good or something bad, knowingly or unknowingly. But all of the things that have been, all of the stories we tell about who we have been and who we are, are just stories. They are ephemeral, they are fleeting, they are gone. The best and worst things of our lives are equally impossible to hold still, no matter how much we try. So I want us to think today about our stories. Our stories as individuals, what it means to be Casey, or Caitlin, or Perry, or Adam, or Susan. But also our stories about what it means to be us now. I've noticed some stories. Some stories about DC and some stories about Wes that we might want to think about. I was talking to Caitlin just on the way in about a story I keep hearing from people about DC not being a real city. That people in big East Coast cities or people from big West Coast cities don't think this is a real city. This is a real city. I've heard some stories about Wes, too. About how Wes used to be 350 people and busy all the time, but is now smaller, less busy. A story that sounds like defeat on my ears. But contraction is natural. It is normal for a thing to get big and then a little smaller and then bigger and then smaller. You think perhaps about how your children grow. They shoot up. They are very thin for a little while. And then maybe they round out a little. You think about how a kitten grows. A kitten is a potato at first, right? Round, squishy, loud. And then it stretches out, and it's long and thin and awkward for a little while. And then there's kind of two kitten paths, right? Some kittens get big and long and thin, and some go back to being a potato, right? Maybe we are a kitten in the awkward stage and trying to decide if we're going to be a potato or a long, lanky cat. Maybe not. 
Maybe we are a community that has faced some real serious challenges. Challenges of pandemic, challenges of growth, challenges of relationship. But the things that have been are not what has to be. The stories about where we were are not a roadmap. They may not even be true. In the end, our friend Harold from Cuisine de Memoir takes to heart his experience of being rebuked and chastened by both his friend and the waitstaff. He does some work on himself. He gives up his desire to fixate on the memory of love that he had once. He gives up on holding his life in emotional stasis. He surrenders to what is unknown. He gives up on his next reservation at the restaurant and calls his ex-wife. He gives up on getting that moment back and chooses a moment in the future that is better. So this is my point. Stories are a vital part of being human and we are telling them all the time. The stories we tell about ourselves and our communities shape how we behave and what becomes real. Our stories about who we are affect who comes in and who stays. Affect how we behave in meetings, in platform, in social time. And we can practice telling stories differently. We can break apart any story, move it around together, and say, what if instead of creating evil, this created love? What if instead of creating a sense of loss in us, this created hope? What if instead of allowing our country to continue attempting to create fascism, we created something better. My friends, I will tell you, as my dear friend Ben told me all those years ago, tell a better story. Thank you. Thank you so much, Casey. After some music, we'll have community sharing time when you can write into the chat or speak into the microphone about what resonated with you in this platform. In this time in between, you might prepare by reflecting on a personal experience or an activity at WES that the platform brings to mind.
As we contemplate, rest, and reflect, let us experience the beauty of the musical response. This is the time when we add our own voices to the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform or what resonates in our own lives. For our online participants, I invite you to share in the Zoom chat or in the comments if you're watching the recording later. I'll start with Zoom comments. We'll accept some comments at the microphone from in-person attendees in the middle and then return, return to our Zoom participants at the end. Laura Steele says, whew, what a gorgeous platform. 
One of my stories that stuck for a very long time, that because I'm little, I can't, can't whatever, I've changed that too. Judy Myers says, I love the phrase, I'm telling myself the story that. Shan Evans says, thank you, KC. A new movie about storytelling that I recommend is 3,000 Years of Longing. Peter Bishop says, an important element of stories is that they are simpler than the truth. They can help us focus on the important parts of the truth. Paul Baker says, interesting book to The Storytelling Animal by Jonathan Gottschall. Now, let's turn our attention to commenters in the hall. Please line up with plenty of personal space and you might take your mask off while at the mic for better sound. Please begin by saying your name and pronouns and keep the comments brief so everyone has a chance to share if they would like. Hi, I'm Sonia. My pronouns are she and her, and it's really lovely to see so many of you here today. Um, in my life, when I was a lot younger, um, the story that I told myself that was incredibly poisonous was, you ought to be able to do that. When it was patently obvious that I, in fact, could not do that for whatever reason, which was not important, and it wasn't until I realized the invisible part of that you ought to be able to do that, which was you ought to be able to do that just by willing it to be true, that I understood that I was telling myself a wrong story and that in order to fix my life, I had to change the second part of that into you ought to be able to do that if you figure out a different way to make it work. Anyway, thanks. Hi, I'm Joe. I don't usually speak up at platform but I'm going to give it a try today. Um, <clears throat> I, the first thing that came to mind was uh, Felix Adler talking about the reality-producing function of the mind. And I'm reminded that uh, in my own life, I was working um, in the general counsel's office of the Immigration and Naturalization Service, and I had an opportunity to move to Hawaii and be the district council there. But at first, I, I just found it really scary, the idea of moving so far away to a place where I didn't know anybody. I had never worked in a district office before. It was going to be very different. And so in my mind, I decided to turn down the opportunity. And then I started thinking, gosh, that's awfully cowardly to do that. And if I turn it down, it'll kind of be the end of my career 
and, um, and I felt really bad about it. So I changed my mind and I decided to take the opportunity. And uh, of course it gave me a wonderful, a wonderful um, time to be in Hawaii for four years. It was a very interesting job. It was quite different from what I had been doing before. And I was so glad that I changed my mind. But I had to kind of try on the other answer first to get there. And that's something else I learned at West: the absolute right to say no. So at first I said no, and I discovered I didn't like saying no. So I said yes. Hello again, everyone. Um, lovely to see you all. My name is Scottney. My pronouns are she, her, ella. This is Journey. For now, her pronouns are she, her. Um, and uh, thank you so much for the lovely platform. Um, I and, and thank you for um, highlighting the distinction between uh, intersectional theory as, as developed by Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, and intersectionality as it's used in some other spaces that that difference is not always um, highlighted and that credit is not always given, so thank you. Um, this reminded me, the platform reminded me of a, a video, probably on TikTok, that I saw of uh, someone saying that when they're asked about if they feel successful or not, how they say it, they said that they try not to use the word successful because it implies an ending has been reached of some kind. Um, and the story that uh, Casey told today also just reminded me that so many of our stories are ongoing and that there is not usually an ending reached and especially I think of parenting and how <laughs> that idea of, you know, I ought to be able to do this or, or I should have done that and um, I should be feeding her more vegetables, whatever the thing is, uh, and remembering that, you know, every day is a, another chapter and another experience is a part of our story and it's always ongoing, so thank you for that. My name is Adam Bruskin Limehouse. My pronouns are he, him. Casey, your platform today reminded me of a story that I like to tell about my time in Peace Corps. It's not actually about me. It's about our Peace Corps medical officer. We just called him Doc. We just called him Doc. He was a tiny Javanese Surinamese man. Came up to about here on me. He had studied medicine in the Netherlands. He had done residencies in both the Netherlands and in the United States. He had been the national director of Suriname's health program. And then as retirement, he came and worked for Peace Corps. This man had no affect, none. He would speak in a monotone. He would almost never use any expression whatsoever. And when you asked him, as you did every time you saw him, Doc, how are you doing today? He would look at you completely deadpan and go, I'm still alive and then wait to see if you got the joke. 
There was no indication that he had told a joke. But he would always wait. And he would always say, it's good to start with, I'm still alive. Because you can only go up from there. Thank you all very much for your comments. Let's return to Zoom to see what else has been added. Many voices. Robin says, a story that I've told myself is that my worth is measured by how clean my house is or how successful my kids are or how perfect I can be at work. But I'm working to relearn that my worth just is. Seems like people are having conversations with each other in the Zoom chat. And so I will say, I'm glad you all are connecting with each other online, but I will, I will spare you. <laughs> Just as we are sharing our perspectives with each other, so too do we share our resources and gifts. Here at West, we split all undesignated gifts in our Sunday collection between our operation budget and a fund dedicated to justice and compassion. This month of September, the fund we are sharing half of our offering with is Washington Interfaith Network, a broad-based, multiracial, multi-faith, strictly nonpartisan citizens' power organization. WIN, WIN, is rooted in local congregations, West is a member, and associations and, represent, and represents 25,000 families in every section of the district. WIN seeks to create long-term power through a broad and united front of organization, institu organized institutions, organized people, and organized money acting consistently and persistently for change on multiple issues at the neighborhood, citywide, regional, and national levels. WIN engages leaders across the divides of race, culture, income, faith, and neighborhood in order to initiate public action on their issues. For example, affordable housing, public safety, youth, many more and to partner with and hold the government and corporate sectors accountable for addressing these issues. Let's all take a moment to prepare for the invitation to generosity. For those who are able to respond, we offer several options. If you are someone who gives by text, the number for that is 202-335-1885, as you can see in the slide. Another option is to go online to the donate button on Wes's website, ethicalsociety.org. You can place cash or a check in the basket at the back of the hall on your way out. You can always send a check by mail as well. We thank you for your generosity and we will now receive the gifts of music.
Thank you so much to the many people who helped create this morning's time together. Our staff members, Casey Slack and Dara Miles, Robin Kravitz, Maceo Thomas, and Tom Hutton. Our interim music coordinator, Leah Morris, and guest musicians, Jess Waitman, Ulithera Dakona Lippert, Brianna Kenny, Elena Hemingway, Mike Menefee, Nathan Moore, and the West Band. To our tech members, Denise Howell, Pat McNeely, and Michael Dimon. Slide artists, John and Abby Dakin. Our Zoom usher, Paul Baker. Our in-person greeters, Alex Abbott, Susan Runner. And our virtual coffee hour host, Judy Myers. At the conclusion of the platform, please join us for social hour in person around the foyer and the patio, or for virtual coffee hour via Zoom. Thanks also to those who are leading and supporting our work in the weeks to come. You can find information about opportunities to connect in the Sunday links or news and notes emails and on the calendar page on Wes's website. Registration is open for Wes's Sunday Ethical Education for Kids or SEEK program. We are recruiting volunteers for teaching teams and the overall SEEK team. You do not need to be a parent to volunteer, and this is a great way to get involved in the community. If you want to play more of a role in the village that helps raise Wes's young people, please email Indara at Indara M, that's N-D-A-R-A-M, at ethicalsociety.org. The West Chorus will be rehearsing this week on Wednesday from 7.30 to 9 p.m. here in the main hall as we prepare to provide music for opening Sunday on September 18th. The course is open to everyone. Please get in touch with Perry Bider if you have any questions or want more details. We're also going to try to introduce something new, which is pre-platform sessions, to introduce folks to the September song of the month, Circle Around, by Ma Muse. If this sounds to you like a fun way to dip your toe into the water of singing at West, please let Perry know. We could do this next Sunday, September 11th, but Perry won't want to show up early if nobody else is going to come. Next week, our platform speaker will be West Senior Leader Casey Slack, addressing the ins and outs of inside. To attend platform in person, please RSVP at tiny.cc slash platform reservation. You will need to bring your vaccination card or a picture of it, or you can tune in by Zoom as we continue with hybrid platforms for the foreseeable future. For now, let me thank you all for being a part of Platform to Today and invite you to join our closing song, Circle Around. I have a circle around me of people to love. I have a circle around me of care. A circle around me of people to love so I can stand up in the face of fear stand up in the face of fear one step in front of the other one step back one love one for each other keeping a circle intact keeping a circle intact you have a circle around you of people. You have a circle around you of care. You have a circle.
Before we leave, if you are new to our community, please send an email to our membership coordinator, Macy Thomas, and introduce yourself. To reach virtual coffee hour, point your browser to tiny.cc slash hour. And now I invite you to join me in our closing words for the month. Let us go out into the week ahead with compassion, understanding, and commitment bringing all of ourselves and honoring all aspects of others in our quest for a better world. Again, thank you all for joining today's platform. We, will, we look forward to connecting again with you soon. <laughs>